so I think I, in that moment, I realized my heart had shifted. It had shifted out of the athletics. It wasn't my number one priority. My priority had moved into medicine. And, you know, I tried a few more times after that to sort of get the motivation up, but I just found I wasn't pushing where you need to push. The, the 400 meters is an event where you cannot be slack in training and you must walk that fine line and push that barrier beyond itself. And I, my heart wasn't there anymore. I don't know the answer to that. The, the, what I'm doing with my girls is I take them to the gym with me all the time. I take them running with me all the time. When we hike, I carry them backpacks so that they understand that exercise is normal. So I'm hoping they grow up thinking, well, that's just what mummy does. So, and especially now that I'm not training for anything, um, I'm just training for fun. They know that that's just fitness. So the more it becomes a normal thing, like normal diet, healthy eating is a norm, uh, hopefully it just becomes organic for them to continue it into their teen years. Welcome to the RMA podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Nicole Bunyan, founder of Running Mums Australia. Each episode, I will be speaking to everyday women who have an inspiring story to tell. We will cover the highs and lows of their own journey, the impact motherhood has had on their life, and how running has inspired them to live wilder, dream bigger, and change the world around them. Thank you for joining us on this new adventure that will hopefully leave an imprint for you to live out your own life inspired to conquer goals you never thought possible. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the RMA podcast. I'm so glad you joined me today. Today I speak to a very special guest, someone I have admired for a very long time since I was younger, and that is Jana Pittman. Jana Pittman is one of Australia's most well-known athletes, having competed in 400 meters and 400 meter hurdles events in her long athletic career. Jana loved running for her country. She competed in her first Olympic Games in athletics in Sydney 2000 as only a 17-year-old. Then she went on to win four Commonwealth Championship medals. She won two senior world titles, the second of those being only eight months after the birth of her first son. She's also been in another Olympic Games and also battled lots of injury and scrutiny until changing lanes and competing in her third Olympic Games in the bobsled event in 2014 at the Sochi Olympics, making Yana the only Australian woman to ever compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympics. Early on, sport is what defined Yana, but her true passion lie in medicine. From a young age, Yana wanted to become a doctor and also wanted to have a family Both of those things that she's now accomplished. She has shared openly about those things in this podcast. Yana graduated from her medical degree in 2019 and now works as a junior doctor. She has four beautiful children. We share about the highs and lows of the journey. We share about the dreams and the setbacks and how she pursued her passion the everyday failings of parenthood. We talk about women's health, which is really passionate about 
And this conversation is so candid and genuinely lovely. I am just so privileged to get to know Yana and the story from her perspective. And I hope that you love this insight to Yana Pittman's life. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our next guest, Yana Pittman. Before we begin, a message from this week's sponsor, Physiocram Massage Gel. Physiocram has been helping Running Mums Australia to achieve their running goals for years now and ease those post-training muscular aches and pains. Hurting sucks and Physiocram has our back. To get your own Physiocram, head to www.physiocram.com.au. Don't forget, if you're a member of the member program, you can get 20% off with your member code. You can also find Physiocram at your local pharmacy. You know, you have a lot of lessons that you can impart to everyday women, just like you and I. <laughs> so I hope so. <laughs> you do. Of course you do. And you know you do. You do. Um, so anyway, let's get started. I am really privileged that you are here. So so thanks for joining me today. I'd like to start with, and I gave you this little question, and I thought maybe I can see if you can do it justice, <laughs> wrapping up your journey in maybe 30 seconds. It's going to be 30 <laughs> seconds of lots of different things. So sure. go. Hi, I'm Yana. I'm a mum of four beautiful children. I was a runner back in the day uh, for Australia in both athletics and bobsled to do both the winter and summer Olympic games. Um, I'm an author and now I'm a doctor in women's health. Oh, that was like 10 seconds. Well done. I do speak. You have noticed I've spoken fast in the past. So I've been doing Chris McAvaney commentary. <laughs> it was one of the things I was joking about the other day for you on Instagram because I'm like, I've heard you speak and, I'm, and then you did that um, Instagram spiel and I was like, oh, she can totally do the 30 seconds. <laughs> you know, I, am, I will try and speak more slowly today, but when I get passionate about something, I do rattle on very quickly. <laughs> As do I. Um, well let's dive a little bit like let's obviously there's probably a lot to this story in terms of your childhood and your athletic journey but maybe let's dive into where you started in um in sport it might not have even been in athletics and this is something you can tell the listeners but where did you start in your sporting career as a junior or a child and how did you journey into your athletic career yeah sure nicole no well for me it was actually pretty much straight into athletics. Um, I was a very academic child, a complete nerd at school. Uh, and so sport fell on me, to be honest. It wasn't something I actually chased. And, it, you know, some I guess some of us have a gift in our physicality. And I have to thank my parents for my genetics in that I'm a six foot tall, 80 kilo strong woman. I look at her weight and I bulk up. So <laughs> it's it's something, not a great thing when you're a track athlete. Um, certainly certainly good now that, you know, I'm, I'm finished my sport and things like that. But um so I think at one stage, all of a sudden I ran a race and I was, I won it and it was a nice feeling to win. And I think I was about nine years old at that stage. And my father took a couple of days off work to come and watch me run. And he was a bit of a workaholic, which you can probably see as a common theme in my life as well. So for him to take a day off and come and spend time with me, that was my motivation was actually to make my dad take time off to spend more time with us. Um, and he would every single race I had zone, you know, regional states, nationals, all that kind of stuff. He would commit to coming in and being my, my coach for the day. So that sort of led into little athletics as a lot of kids do, um, which I, which I absolutely loved. Um, and then, yeah, by 14 years of age, I remember thinking I'd love to carry one of the baskets at the Sydney Olympic games behind those big athletes. Uh, and I applied and I got the job and I thought, this is great. I'm going to be in the stadium watching these amazing athletes. And then somehow out of absolutely nowhere, I ran an Olympic qualifier myself at 15 years of age. So 
I was really disappointed. I didn't get to carry the basket, <laughs> but I got to be on the track myself um, in my uh, in my final in my HSC year and um, and and experience that extraordinary. You know what we did in Sydney was 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 amazing, and and you know room next to Kathy Freeman and little things like that 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 spurred on the rest of your career because you got to watch firsthand what it would be like to be at that level and and sort of sniff around in in that in that pool yourself. Mm, wow, that's that's quite a a journey like from from being 14 and then qualifying and running it was crazy olympics at 50 i mean you're so young by the time i went to the olympics i always think i was late 16 or early, or might have even no no i was just yeah i was in i was I turned 16 so i qualified when i was 15 and then yep. about a year before we actually the, you know the games came about but it, you know, i dropped a second in a race so i was always sort of promising oh look she's got a bit of talent and and then I think um, I got to join the amazing Melinda Gainsford Taylor as a 14 year old and training alongside someone her that like her, who is so brilliant, lifted your game. Like all of a sudden, and I'm a, I'm a bit of a, you know, obviously I'm quite competitive in sport, funnily enough, not out of sport, but in the sports arena. So when you see this amazing hero of yours running and you're like, oh, I can, I can run up next to her in training. You, you try every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what drove that, that, uh, that Olympic campaign. So what kind of, competitor were you I mean you say you were quite competitive in sport what when you were 16 years old like what kind of competitor were you and how did that actually um, play alongside you obviously having to juggle being an athlete and being a student at the same yes. time that's a great question and I know a lot of us as mums really worry about our kids uh, certainly if some of them are following in sports footsteps or, or watching us doing this training there's there's always going to be kids that hopefully they want to run as well um, and I know my parents were very worried about it they were very worried that uh, that my HSC marks would be you know I guess much lower because of the training and to put it into context, I only went to school 36 days in that HSC year. So everything else was studied out of a textbook. So on the road, um, in, you know, training for the Olympics and whatnot. So I did have mum there who was a teacher. So it was helpful to have her, um, you know, on the sideline kind of forcing me to, tr- to work. But well, actually in truth, she didn't have to force me. I, I definitely was a complete nerd and I, and I love to study. Mm-hmm. And I think in hindsight, that's actually why it made both of them work well, because I had such a great balance between not throwing all your energy into the sports basket um, and therefore being so disappointed when things didn't go wrong or injuries coming because you had didn't have time to be like that to start off with. You had your, your, your academic side as well going. Um, but on the flip side of that, I think the endorphins from sport and the positive vibes we get from keeping active and physical, you know, you know even, even just your, you know, the adrenaline that courses through your body when you go for a long run helps you study and it helps you concentrate and it helps you be more well in yourself. So I'm a strong advocate for, for young, for young women and for us um, busy mums who work full time in, in trying to keep that activity going. Cause I think the mental health and, and the, the physical benefits are so strong. hundred mm, percent. And what did you, did you have any goals like in terms of with your study after the HSC? It was always medicine for me. So I wanted to be a doctor since I was like five or six years old. Long before I even knew the Olympics existed, I wanted to be a doctor. So I literally fell into sport. <laughs> um, so I didn't get the mark straight out of, um, out of well, that's a hard, hard way to go around it. But you know how they sometimes give some free marks out during the HSC to athletes? I got those and therefore could have possibly gone straight into medicine. Um, but my family thought it was better to do physiotherapy first. So after the HSC, I started physio. Mm-hmm. And to my, much to my parents' dismay, lasted about six months and then got the call up from the AIS to go down and, and live and train in Canberra. And I don't think there's many young athletes that don't say yes to that. So pretty soon I packed up my whole apartment and moved, <laughs> moved all the way to Canberra uh, to get that live-in athlete experience. 
And what was that experience like for you? I mean, training and competing would have become your life. And it, what were and those years like for you? Would you believe, and again, I come back to that whole balance situation. I got injured almost straight away. So as soon as I threw all my eggs into one basket and started focusing entirely on athletics and becoming so fixated on every little point and, you know, uh, and second that went wrong or everything I didn't do right, because I, I overthink a lot of things, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point, um, it, it didn't work as well. So it was, it was interesting that I realized I actually had to start studying. So I just found a course at, um, at the local Canberra university to sort of pick up because I'm someone who very much needs that um, mental stimulation as well uh, to feel balanced. And, um, and, and I'm, I think I'm more successful when I have multiple balls in the air. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk a little bit about the Olympic experience and even, you know, all <laughs> the different major races that you've, you've qualified and competed in, but, Let's talk about your first Olympic Games. It was a young athlete standing on that. Well, not even that. You did you go to the opening ceremony? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, the opening ceremony at Sydney. I did go to because I was so young and my performance. In all truth, I was a baby. I was there to have fun and to smell the roses. I was never gonna, never going to win a medal. <laughs> you know. So my coach was fine with me going out and, and living that experience. So it was quite special to be part of that opening ceremony and, and walking out and watching the flag and watching sort of Kathy come down in the white suit and light. You know, it was all amazing. It was. I can still actually I can still feel my how my heart was racing during that opening ceremony and watching it around me and trying to pinch yourself, thinking surely this is not real. This this can't be real. So it was the only opening ceremony I went to until Sochi because after that, you know, the next Olympics was, I was there to to do the real deal by then. So Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful I had that experience. So when you line up for a race like such as yours, which is disgusting, (laughs) but quite intense, um, what what (laughs) goes through your mind on the start line of that event? I mean, that it's, everyone's watching and also all of Australia is watching you and waiting for your performance. How do you feel inside when you know all of that's happening? I've asked this question before in the podcast to guests and and lots of different people. Like, what does that feel like? And some people say that, you know, they kind of block it all out. Some people say they take all that energy in. Like, what do you, what did you do? Uh, it's, it was very dependent on the level of the race. So Commonwealth World Champs Olympics, I do get very nervous. I'm a naturally nervous person. Um, and thankfully, as soon as that whistle blew, everything just disappeared. So I'd be quite nervous leading up into that event and, um, and it, finding it difficult to focus. But I was just extremely lucky that somehow my brain just left me. So the minute that the real action happened, it was almost like I was on autopilot and, and nothing could interfere with that, which was great. The only time that didn't happen was actually the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 2006, because the crowd was so beautiful and they were screaming my name so loud, it was impossible for me not to hear them. So when, the, when they went on your marks, I could actually hear the crowd cheering my name and it almost made me want to cry with happiness and I'm like come on Yanni, you've got to focus you've got to win this like yeah. um, but I did and I used the crowd I had a, a broken hamstring in that race I remember I actually kind of torn it a few weeks before I'm riddled with injuries as I'm sure you know but that crowd carried me to that gold medal so I, I know in all my heart I wouldn't have won it without that beautiful support from the stadium so it can do both um, we definitely at that level need to block it out sometimes because if you run on your nerves every time you race, you, you, you just be on the floor with emotion every time, but sometimes you need to use it. Yeah. And how do you actually, it's interesting. I was, I um, had an event the other night and I was interviewing Eloise Wellings and um, we were talking about one, one of her races. Uh, I can't remember right now which one it was, but 
she had just had a baby not long ago and as she went to start the race she could hear the baby crying yeah that's happened to me too and she had a full-on letdown and then she had to run and that's all she could think about the, the letdown like how do you block out if you are going to block out the noise like what tips do you use to help block out those external things that might interfere with your performance yeah. We were born on the same day, funnily enough, Eloise and I. Yeah, just really nice. Yeah, both both in November. So anyhow, um, look, for me, it really is very automatic. So I don't know if it's because, you know, we talk about this sort of the um, the heightened adrenaline curve and sort of not going over too far or, or having enough anxiety to get to that to that performance level. Um, and I, and I remember getting so nervous as a child that one time all the nerves just literally went boom and disappeared. And so then I was like, Oh, I, I like this. I like this, this moment. So I, I don't even know what I, unfortunately, I can't even tell you what I did in that moment other than, no, I do remember actually, Nicole, there was one race where I actually pulled out because of the nerves. So I was in so incredibly nervous. And would you believe it was actually the first time I actually was going to race Kathy Freeman. So oh. it, was, it should have been the, the race of a lifetime, you know, where you're so excited to run against one of your heroes. And I got so nervous. I didn't, I, I was like complaining of sore hamstring. I, I did have a sore hammy, but I was more like idiot in other words. <laughs> and I pulled out and I remember feeling after that, the pain was actually from sabotaging myself. It was got nothing to do with my body and my mind. I sat there thinking, you coward, like why? Like you, in that little moment I failed because I didn't even try. Whereas failing because I'd tried really hard would have been a much, you know, an outcome that would have sat in your tummy, tummy well. Um, and so every time I go into a race, I would draw on that moment. I would draw on that failure, my own personal failure of not trying and thinking, well, it can't be as bad as that. So after a while, I just went into automatic mode and I, and I wouldn't even think about that moment anymore. But for a long time throughout the early years of my, my senior athletics career, I'd definitely go back to that. I'd feel the nerves getting really, really bad. And I'd literally have that little voice going, it's your choice, walk out, there's the door. Mm. And I'd be like, no, I can't, no, I can't. And then I'd go into my place. Mm. And eventually that became autonomous. So, and it's funny because I, I do um, sometimes recall that story. And especially when I'm talking to coaches who are co coaching young athletes, and if they have a very nervous athlete, I would literally enroll them in a race if I was you and then pull them out at the last minute and say, you're not racing because you're too nervous. Mm. How does that feel? And then the next time let them race and say, well, it's a choice. You can pull out again if you like. I'm happy for you to pull out. So actually change their whole focus around what that, those nerves mean and, and, and allow them to learn that they're actually a positive because we all get nervous. Okay. You know, the athlete that says they're not is like in all truth. <laughs> all and, to themselves. And you can relate that to lots of things in life. And even as women, like I know, like even just listening to that, not even in terms of like performance and running or just in life, like just not tying things. We've talked about this. Yeah online together i'm not trying things because you're worried that you're going to fail and you haven't even tried yet like right. so you're sabotaging yourself you're setting yourself up for failure before you've even started right exactly. we have a whole podcast about that <laughs> like, quite easily yes yeah so, yeah and and, and it, it's human nature we are afraid of i mean i'm still afraid of failure I, i'm happy to admit that i'm you know that's one of my my biggest weaknesses and it's one of my drivers in why i take on so many um hard hard goals like as in you know I could have very much just sat on my laurels and said, I've been an Olympic athlete and gone into commentary and sort of just followed that sports life. But that little niggling of goal of, I really want to be a doctor kept rearing its head and saying, 
you know, give us, give me a crack. I'll, I'll go and try, get into the, get into this. And to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't even know if I was clever enough. So it was such a risk to go. And it would have been such an, when it was, I failed the first time trying to get into medicine so that you have to sit this big, scary exam to get in. And I failed it. And I was just like, Oh God, I'm, I'm not clever enough. And what a kick in the balls that was to think, you know, the, but I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to study harder and I'm going to work harder at this. And, 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 and eventually obviously I'm a doctor now. So clearly I, I got in, but, um, and there was certainly no leniency there. So there was no, um, just because you're Yana and you've been to the Olympics, uh, there was absolutely no free marks given. It was either you made the grade or you didn't, which in hindsight is the kind of doctor you want. You don't want someone, Oh, I know you on TV, but do you know what you're doing? <laughs> so, and like, that's like, we're totally going to get into this side of your story because I find that so fascinating. But before we do, I did have a few more questions just about um, your sporting career. One of them being, um, when you competed at the Sochi Winter Olympic Games in the bobsled. Yes. Now, a lot of people like listening today would know that you obviously are Yana, who was an athlete in athletics, but also they might not know that you were actually in bobsled as well. It's <laughs> a bit crazy. <laughs> it is like totally like a mate, like just random in Australia anyway, to think of a True. bobsled athlete. So can you tell us how that journey came about um, yeah. and, and what was that experience like? I'd imagine quite exciting. It was extraordinary. Extraordinary for a couple of reasons though, Nicole. The first one probably because I was in a team for the first time. I mean, I did run four by fours and I always loved running the relays in um, at the Olympics, but to be in a team all the time where the focus is actually, in, particularly in bobsled, it's on the driver and I was the big muscle on the back. So she was the, what's called the pilot and I was what's called the brakeman. It's a two woman bobsled. So not four, like you see in cool runnings, women do, um, do the two woman event. Uh, so that was the first thing. So it was so different because the focus was not on me. The second thing and the reason why I did it was unfortunately leading into the London Olympics, I got injured again. So I was reigning world champion in 2003 and 2007 in athletics. So odds on favorite to win both the 2004 and the 2008 Olympics and got injured both times. So come London, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Surely fourth time, fourth Olympics can't be injured, injured again. I tore my uh, plantar fascia about three months before the London Olympic Games. And I thought, I'm done. Clearly athletics hates me. <laughs> I, can't, I can't keep, you know, I can't keep hitting my head against a brick wall, basically. Uh, but, but I didn't feel done in sport. So I thought, why don't I have a crack at, at other sports? Like I, I genuinely thought my body type maybe wasn't good for athletics. Perhaps I should have done throwing or something like that with my size. So I thought, well, where is their power and still running? Because I love to run. Um, and that's where bobsled looked like a really great option. I did try, I did try boxing and rowing as well. Um, I quit rowing fairly quickly because I'm actually afraid of sharks. And a couple of the training sessions in Sydney were out on the harbour and it freaked me out. I quit. It's so embarrassing, but just being honest. Um, so bobsled was a beautiful fit. So it was lots of heavy. I mean, I could, during my bobsled career, I could power clean 110 kilos. Like it was just, and I could squat 180. Like it was crazy. And that's what I know. And I'm not saying that to be arrogant. I'm saying it because it's extraordinary for a woman that like the power that could be inside. I didn't even know it was, I couldn't even do half that in athletics. So I was starving myself to be slim all the time and keep my weight down to, to make sure I wasn't getting injured in athletics. Whereas in bobsled, I loved it because I could do just, literally be the athlete I was supposed to be. So fuel it the way it should have been fueled and train it the way. And I got no injuries the entire bobsled career other than I think a broken fingernail when I had a crash one time, but nothing. So it was a beautiful sport. So the memories are so positive from that. Whereas certainly 
from athletics, there's some, there's some really hard memories. There's some sad memories around losing the Olympics and around some of the public media stuff that happened. And, you know, there's so whilst I feel incredibly proud and lucky that I ran for Australia in athletics, it, it also has so much sorrow for, for me. Um, whereas Bob said was nothing but a fantastic ride. I got to go to another Olympics. And by then I really appreciated what it was to be an Olympian. Um, so I, I remember taking, don't laugh at me, but I remember standing at the top of the start of the race and going click, click, click and taking visual photos of the whole of the start because I never did it in athletics. And I can't even remember what the start of the Athens race felt like. I can't even picture it. Mm. And I wanted to remember it. I wanted to really be able to recall the honour of it is to represent your country. And so for me, Bob said, was just wonderful, an absolutely wonderful personal, emotional and social event. Oh, that's so nice. Wow. There's so much to unpack in all of that. Like one thing is, um, you know, you, you touched on your emotional journey in terms of the media scrutiny and, and all those things. How did you manage that time as such? I mean, you were still young, you know, how did you manage that time as such a young person? And obviously that took a toll on your relationships and yeah, it did one of the questions I have for you was how you managed that as such a young athlete and um, what that was like for your whole family. So not just you, you know, this, this is a team, team thing for you and your yep. family um, yep. who obviously are such an amazing support to you. Um, and now as a grown woman, what would you tell yourself to do <laughs> differently or not even you do, but how would you respond differently to that kind of scrutiny or, or any advice you could give someone else that might be going through a similar thing as an athlete? There are so many questions that I want to answer in that. So <laughs> it, it was a different era to start off with, I'll say. We didn't have social media, Instagram and Facebook back then. So I think as a young athlete now, it's very different. If, or even, you know, even yourself, you're going through, you know, you've created this incredible online profile for, for RMA and for, for women. And you'll have trolls and people who say positive things and negative things. And it depends what kind of personality you are. And if, if you're like me, I took everything to heart. So the only way I could get through it was to not look at it because I have always been a person and I don't mind admitting this for many years, I was very guarded and didn't want to admit this, but I am very emotional and I, I really wanted to be liked. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it's human nature. So I don't think any of us go into anything saying, oh, I want to be hated. Like I don't want to be a positive role model in this country. So, and so therefore at times I thought I couldn't see the negative in the media. I did. So when someone said, would you like to do an interview? I'd be like, yeah, that'd be great. And I said yes too often. Um, and I was too available through the media time and without the social media you have now, had it been the same time, I could have talked to my fans, apologised for some of the silly things I said, laughed about myself. So, you know, being able to engage directly with your fans would have been very different. Whereas when I was going through that media, yes, I was young, said some silly things, spoke very fast back then as well. And I think, <laughs> I think it just didn't resonate very well. Um, and, and I just didn't know when to stop. So I would have loved to have had the opportunity to speak to my the people who were thinking, who were sitting on the fence going, I'm not sure if we really like her. She's a bit, un, you know, a bit unusual and, you know, a bit confident at times and then very unconfident in other times and teary at some times and then happy at others. It would have just been nice to, to be able to directly reach people and say, I'm sorry I did this. I'm proud. I'm grateful, you know, mm -hmm. and have that direct connection. So if, if someone is borderline on that journey of starting a, uh, a social media career or a career in sport, or I'd just say be authentic and be yourself because you can't change who you are. There are going to be people that don't like you um, and it's okay to be sad about that too. You know, you can pretend you're bulletproof and pretend it doesn't hurt, but for 
the majority of us it does and none of us do things on purpose we're just human we make mistakes uh, and if you're prepared for all that then go for it um, otherwise be a more private person and don't do as much media and don't maybe engage in the social side of things because you're always going to come up against people that aren't going to like you mm. yeah that is so true it took I mean, me a I long time to get there though <laughs> I mean back in that era it was it was really intense with Australian athletics like remember it was really intense um, the media and yeah we didn't have all the social media that no. we, you didn't have the opportunity to to correct what people said about you or, or give your um, opinion on that or you know it was just very different to yeah. And you do an interview and they would cut and paste the interviews a lot. So, you know, I vividly remember one where I was talking about how much I loved running for Australia. Like I just was, because I, I mean, I was the one who painted my nails um, in Australian flags and was very positive. I love this country, like I'm obsessed with Australia. Uh, and this particular interview was saying, you know, but it must be so intense because you're such a well-known, this is right in the heart of my athletics career, you're such a well-known athlete and, you know, you have positive and negative media. Surely it would be easier to go and live in the, your husband's British, go and live in the UK and train over there. I said, yeah, of course, it'd be easy to go over there and, and but I love Australia they cut the I love Australia out and went of course it would be easy, easier to go over to the UK and then chuck the whole she's moving to, to, to Britain to run for, the, for another country and you're like no I'm not so because but, but you, you understand as well because they're there to make a job and the way they sell papers or the way they sell rights to their television is is to get the dramatic stories um, and unless you're very clever in what you talk about, uh, you get in trouble. And then people, but then the flip side is if you're guarded, you're not authentic. So there's no win-win. You just, you just need to be comfortable in who you are. Did you ever feel like you just wanted to go away and not be known by anybody at that time? Uh, well, I, I think I have to some degree. So, you know, I've been asked to do every celebrity TV show under the planet back in the days. And I've said no to everything because I was so afraid of being um, judged through those sort of, platforms uh, so I, I definitely became more like that um, which was contrary because I think everyone thought oh she loves the media she just chases media stories and then I ran as far away from them as possible because I just realized that was easier so uh, and now I'm getting a bit bit older I'm, I'm now starting to say yes to a few things and you know I'm commentating the Olympics this year and that sort of things coming up so um, yeah which would be great so but it, it took a little while honestly it probably took me finishing medicine and feeling the confidence in who I was as a doctor and as a mother you know, I think having four kids definitely levels you a lot and makes you realise who cares what people think. You know, you, you, you go to work every day trying to do a good thing and help women and then you come home and you have these little kids looking at you so adoringly. It's yeah. very hard to, have, to maintain low self-esteem when they love you so much. <laughs> so you just learn along the way lots of lessons as you get older, like about what matters, what doesn't matter, what we need to put our energy into and what we don't put our energy into. Yeah. Um, exactly. Sometimes the people are still going to be there that are going to say negative things, but we need to not put our energy into that. Yeah, and we're the, and that's the same for everyone. Be whether you're famous or in a work situation. You know, I so so many of my friends go, oh, you know, I have this in my work. My, I'm being bullied at work, or this lady's just not letting me progress in my career, or you know, it, it's it's across every lifestyle that we have to accept that there's there's going to be differences of personality. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move into the next journey which is motherhood. <laughs> That's my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about when you first became a mum. And were you still training at the time? I think you were. And yeah. what was that experience like for you being a mum for the first time and trying to retain, I guess, your athletic career at the same time? 
Uh, look, the retaining the athletics career was actually easier than the motherhood. <laughs> I was only 23, so I was very young. Um, my husband at the time was 10 years older than me and was ready for a family. And I've always wanted to be a mum of five. So that was my goal, to have five children. I'm almost there with four. So, um, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Try and try and have another, um, but yeah. So I, it was. All of us find the first baby difficult. I don't think there's many of us that would say it's the. We all love them, of course, and they're you know, our our heart blood. But it's it's, it was such a shock to the system, and I and I'll explain it based on the fact that, in sport and even in academics back then, if I tried hard enough, it worked. But there were times when I tried really hard to make him sleep and he just wouldn't, or I couldn't get my breastfeeding to work, or it was a real lesson in failure in all truth because yeah. yeah. I just felt like I was failing every five seconds at this motherhood thing yeah. so it was great level a great leveler um and you know certainly as I've got older what's been so lovely is because I had him so young in my sports career he's been able to watch me do the first couple of years of athletics he was there on the sideline and I was feeding him in the call room for one of my major races because my partner couldn't get the food in and so I'm like rushing this food in as, as they're calling Yana Yana final call <laughs> Yeah, I'm coming, I promise. Um, you know, so, and then he's watched the transition into bobsled and then he's watched the bobsled transition into medicine. So I think that's a real privilege to have had that relationship. And we are very good friends. Um, and, and I was a single mother for 15 years as well. So uh, uh, he and his, my dad, his father and I separated when he was only two. So to have that beautiful companionship with him for 12 years subsequently has been absolutely amazing. Mm. So how did you like deal with the failure? Like knowing not you well. <laughs> and like, you know, everybody who's listening to this and the majority of listeners are mothers yes. um, are going to be going, I hear you, sister, like first baby, you it's don't fun. know anything. So you're just learning like anyone who starts a new career, anything, a new sport, this is a whole new thing. And so, you know, you've come from high level sport where achievement and performance is paramount and here you are failing almost every single day um (laughs) how did you deal with that as a parent because um i imagine that would have been a hard thing especially for you who is quite a high achiever you know you work hard and you a bit more of that um you know you want to want to achieve things so especially with things like breastfeeding like i remember breastfeeding my first baby was an absolute schmozzle i thought i was going to be all over it and it was horrible and yeah. we ended up in formula, I think, by week two. It was just so hard. I never thought I think anything was going to be so hard. So how did you actually deal with that? Did you just ride the wave or was there people that helped you? Uh, yeah, I did have very good support. So, yes, I had my mother who um, was around a lot for that because she was um, only in her like, late 50s, early 60s then. So she was definitely around to help a lot um, and loved having another little person to love. Uh, I, similar to you, my breastfeeding started failing very early. And I'm going to be honest with you, I think partly it was my running. So I went back to full speed training within and I'm not advocating for this, ladies, and I will go on to say why. <laughs> Three days of having a baby, I was back at the track running. Wow. Um, and then... I'm going to say it straight away. I peed myself the entire year, including in the final of the world championships was I had to splash water on myself before I started the race. Cause I knew that I was not going to make it over the last hurdle without having wet bloomers. So it's, and I've done very, things very differently with the subsequent children um, with very much looking after the, my pelvic floor um, postpartum period. Cause it's, it's, I don't, I really don't believe you should be running that early, but you know, I was 24, I was very headstrong. Um, and, and I think that intensity of training affected my breast milk and the same as you by 
four or five weeks he was on the bottle and it broke my heart. And it was funny because I didn't realize it at the time. It was a couple of weeks later when I, I think I just shoved the failure away and thought, oh, well, you know, formula's fine. And, um, and then, then it really hit me that, I'd, that I failed on that aspect because like you, I thought it was going to be really easy. But, you know, and we're always sleep deprived. You're young, your social life's gone. Um, I got really injured very quickly. So I tore my plantar fascia about 12 weeks after he was born and then wallowed in, you know, a bit of self-pity there as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, you muddle through. So, you know, if there's some listeners on here who are in the early phases of a baby at home, it, it is tough. You know, I've got a four-month-old lying on my lap right now. <laughs> He's asleep in my arms. Um, and even with a fourth, there are days where I feel like I'm going to pull my hair out. And there are other days I'm like, thank God, it's my fourth and I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so uh, I just think, you know, it's a privilege that we can be mums. I work in infertility. Um, I've also donated a, one of the, one of the highlights of my life was actually donating a couple of embryos to two different families to have children because the, one of them was a same sex marriage. So they obviously don't have a woman. And the other one was a lady who'd done multiple, multiple rounds of IVF with no luck. So it is a privilege to be a mother. Uh, so that is what I do every day that it's hard. I, I sit up and I think I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky that I can have children because I know how hard it's not. And, and I've also had a couple of miscarriages myself and I remember how heartbreaking that, that is. So I just, I don't know if that's what I do. In, I do actually I do that in most things in life when something's going really badly and failing. I just try really hard to look at the opposite of what, it, what, what could have been if it hadn't have been, you know, if I hadn't have been so lucky to be a mum or an athlete or a doctor or, or whatever the positive is in that moment. Do you think that those parallels kind of come from something you've learned as an athlete coming Probably. through? Because you fail so much in athletics. Yeah. You, you know, you lose races all the time. Like even if you're, you know, Kathy Freeman and, and myself and Sally Pearson, we all lost races. You know, was, you're not unbeatable. There's always going to be someone better than you. And we, we all have that now, even with our, with our running, you know, our, even if I, I, had, I don't like losing my park runs, but I do regularly. <laughs> I come last. That was the worst run for me ever. I love park run, but I hate park run. <laughs> if that makes it's sense. not very good at it. So, but uh, anyway. kilometers, it's, it's a fair way for you, Yana. It is. It is a long way for me. I did 4K this morning. I was very proud of myself. <laughs> I joked with my sister-in-law Deb because she was like a hundred-meter hurdler, and like, she's yeah. like, I'm not running five kilometers. I'm like, what? You can run. She's like, not five kilometers. Because people always said to me, oh, you should go and do triathlon because you can cycle and you can swim. And I'm like, yeah, but I can't run 10K. <laughs> Yes, I do think I drew a lot of parallels from sport in that respect because, and, and I've just failed so often that I'm kind of a bit immune to that failure and I'm not afraid of it because I know that from that failure, something good will happen. Mm. And I think the, the thing is like as mums, we're going to be continually feeling like we're failing. Oh, constantly. My eldest child is now almost 20 and really? yeah i know i know i just feel so old but i but i'm not i'm not 23 like you so i was a baby when i had him and yeah yeah and um and i i feel like i am still failing every day and he's 20 like you know they're all teenagers and every day i think i'm not doing a good job but as mums all we can do is our best and show right. them love and support them in their endeavors and try our best. Like, and I think we're just all giving it a good go and we all have to juggle so much these days and we choose to, we choose to. Um, but I think we need to kind of cut ourselves slack as much, you know, yeah. and the quicker you can get to that. So for me, how, cause I often get asked, how do you get over failure or how do you get over the guilt, the mother guilt and things like that is that I let it out. 
So I go and have a quiet cry or for me, which I, again, you probably don't want me to advocate, but I'll go and eat half a block of chocolate if I'm having a really bad day because I figure you're the same. Oh, good. I'm good. Same <laughs> so, I so I let myself break. And I think it's not something that many of us are comfortable talking about, but I don't see the point in bottling up the pain and just holding on to it. I think get it out, have a cry, talk to someone, whatever it is, is that your outlet is. Um, do it as often as you need to, because once you purge yourself of that, feeling you can then crack on with being the parent that you need to be or the runner that you want to do or the you know the boss at work or you know we can't keep walking around with all that baggage hanging on and so many of us do because we want to be stoic for our kids or stoic for our husband or we just don't feel like we can let ourselves go and break and it's funny i tried for years after all the negative media when i was younger because i was too emotive i tried for years to block that and i became a hard-nosed unhappy unsuccessful person until 2012 when I broke completely and bawled my eyes out for two weeks and ate everything under the sun and then actually went off my food because I was so sad um, and then finally yeah finally came through the other end and realized actually you know what I need to do is allow it out so now people are like well you know at one stage I was a single mum studying to be a doctor and going to the Olympics at the same time doing a PhD and throwing everything at it speak public speaking writing a book you name it I was doing it and yeah. people are like, how how is it humanly possible when there's only 24 hours in the day and I said, because once a month, I spend the entire weekend in bed watching TV, crying or cracking it or whatever it needs to do. And then I reboot and I start again. So that I have such high energy levels. I don't carry any of the emotion anymore. I let it out. So yes, emotions can be negative, but they can also be a huge positive. Mm, I like that. I like that you, you know, that you say to allow yourself that because a lot of women don't. No, they we don't, don't allow themselves that. They think they have to put this brave, positive face on all the time. Yeah. Or they're not even authentic. And no. that's thing that I'm trying to be better at myself, like even in my social media, just saying how it is, like some days are just really crap. <laughs> like they're really hard and I'm struggling through. And that's and I want people to know that because that's who I am and I'm not going to pretend that it's any different. And and I want people to know that, you know, every everyone has struggles. And that's the beauty of um of networks like RMA is that we feel open enough to share them and right. talk about things. And it's very special. It's, it's not going to be all sugar-coated. We all deal with everything and it's such a good place to be able to just say, hey, I'm dealing with this. Is anyone else dealing with this too? And have people give you their perspective. So that's mm. no, great. And it's really good for people like yourself because you also post great positive posts and, you know, all these great photos of where you're running and I get very jealous. But <laughs> um, but then you, you have the authentic posts as well. So, and I think that's what we need to encourage more of is that, that we're just honest with ourselves and who we are because so much of our lives are lived on social media these days, particularly with the last 12 months of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of us were drawn to that social media to, to have any interaction with others. So we need to make sure that if we need help or if someone else needs help that we, we can see it. 100%. Let's talk about your career now. Um, and this will probably mingle through with, you know, with everything, motherhood and career. But um, when you started training as a doctor, you'd already had your first child. Yeah. Now, now, now which, part, which, which part of your journey in motherhood were you full on all in starting to train as a doctor? I imagine training to be a doctor is not a quick process. <laughs> it's very but long. When did you start this journey? And and you only just really recently finished, or well, not even finished, you're not even finished yet, but where did you, like you finished getting your, being a I'm doctor. I'm a doctor, but I need my yeah, formal training. Yeah. Now you're doing the extra training. Um, so when did you start and, and how long has this journey been? And like, what were the, the highs and the lows of this journey for you? 
Um, so I've always wanted to be a doctor since I was very young. So I've always been um, doing subjects that I could do to use towards medicine. So in 2012, I applied the first time, didn't get in. And then the second time, 2013, I got in. Thankfully, I got really, really good marks. So I was very lucky um, and started medicine. Still felt like a fraud, I have to be honest, thinking, oh God, am I really, really smart enough to do this? Um, and funnily enough, though, it was exactly the same time as I started bobsled. So I was, I had one child. I had, I didn't have the girls or Charlie yet, um, just Cornelis. He was, well, he would have been six at that stage. So uh, yeah, so we moved up to Sydney um, and I started training full time with a little one, moved home with mum and dad. That was probably one of the keys is that I needed the support to try and train and study full time. So I moved home at 30. <laughs> that was interesting. Um, but yeah, mum's amazing. So yeah, so cracked on with both. And then um, unfortunately I, I was, I had, did have a partner around that time that unfortunately we, we lost a couple of babies, uh, a couple of miscarriages. Uh, and we, we're both, we're very good friends still. So um, he desperately wanted children. I decided I didn't want any more kids. I was very broken by those miscarriages and thought, that's it, I'm done. You know, typical woman, I'm done. <laughs> um, and so threw myself into medicine. Um, and after the Sochi Winter Olympic Games, that yearning to have more children came back. And unfortunately that relationship had fallen over because I'd said I didn't want any more. And, and for whatever reason, we couldn't mend that. Um, so yeah, came back out of medicine and literally third year of med school, I went home to mum and said, mum, I really want to have a baby, but I don't have a partner. <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> Look, there was lots of other things. I had a positive cervical test at that point as well. So I was worried that I was going to have to have half my cervix removed. Um, I had an AMH. For those who don't know, that is that's what our reserve, our ovarian reserve was quite low. So there was a chance I'd go into early menopause. So there was lots and lots of reasons behind that decision. Um, and I ended up going through IVF and having the two girls by myself um, during medical school. So during third and fourth year medical school, I had babies. <laughs> so and I took... It took about six to eight months off with each one um, and just did research in those years and then yep, flew back in. So final year medical school was the hardest year because I had three little kids at home. Two of them were very young. Um, it was, I was financially stretched, as you can imagine, as a single parent with no, no other than speaking gigs uh, and, you know, the occasional commentary thing. I really didn't do, didn't have a job. I was studying too hard uh, and I don't mind sharing that I was trying really hard to get very high marks. I really wanted the university medal. It was in my head. Um, I believe that would replace the Olympic gold medal for me. So I wanted to prove to myself that it wasn't, that I wasn't, I wasn't the issue in my athletics career, that it was bad luck with the injury. So I threw everything I had into those marks to try and say, look, if you work really, really, really hard, this can happen. Uh, so that final year was was the death, honestly, of me, because I was training and, sorry, I was studying so hard. I didn't even go for a run the whole year, Nicole. Like, I did not even the whole year. Do <laughs> you remember how fat and unhappy I was at the end of the year? <laughs> With a bag of Maltesers and studied till yeah. one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, I, and funnily enough, my marks were a little bit lower. It didn't matter. I, I was very lucky. I did get the medal that I wanted. But um, I was so unhappy mentally. So I realised what I was missing was my... Oh, I always preach the balance, Yana. You need to train endorphins, adrenaline, and study. And I let that go. And yeah, I was—I got very close to not quite getting the marks I needed. So, um, good lesson to everyone: do not give up your running. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you kind of had to give something up at that time. You had a child, two little babies, and you were yeah. training to become a doctor in your final year. I would imagine that was a very intense period of time. It was, it was, it was almost breakable. Like it was the close, it was, it was, it was tough. I can't, I can't lie. Um, if it wasn't for my parents being so, so incredibly supportive, uh, it would have, it wouldn't have worked. 
So it was, and, you know, and I also was, um, I, my, my close friend, Nanny Joan, actually sponsored me with a daycare centre. So the kids, I knew were at a very good centre, uh, which was amazing because otherwise, yeah, it, it's tough balancing all the different lifestyles together. I love it. Wow. Well, and that's brought you to your new career, which is just yeah. incredibly amazing and how, how excellent. Like, you know, you worked hard for it and you got what you wanted, which is what you dreamt of when you were young. That's right. Yeah, I have to. Yeah. The day they announced when they do your when you do your graduation and they say Dr. Yana Pittman, I was like in tears again. Yeah, and then and you pinch yourself too when someone rings you on the phone like uh, Dr. Pittman, and you're like me, me, me. Oh yeah, no, yes, yeah, yes. Hello. It's <laughs> hilarious. I love it. I love it. It just is testament to how hard you worked, and you know, it, it's a long journey. It's a hard journey. A lot of people would give up. You know, especially having little kids and being a single mom and all those things, a lot of people would give up. A lot of people wouldn't have thrown all the extra things in like you did along the way as well. <laughs> but, you know, you're not one to shy away from a challenge. And I think it's testament to how hard you worked that you got where you wanted and you will go a long way in your career. Um, you have, you are the perfect doctor because you have a passion for it. And, um, really and that's where we're going now with the questions. So, um, Let's just talk about why you love being a doctor. What is your particular interest and where you want to go with medicine? Um, I, I love, to be honest, when I first started medicine, I'd done midwifery as part of my undergraduate. So it's always been women's health for me. Um, I remember being involved in the first, my first ever birth when I, I was only like 28 or 29 at that stage. And I had, obviously I'd been my own birth, but being on the other end and being the support partner for someone was extraordinary I remember walking out of that going oh my god that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen <laughs> so thinking that's what I wanted to do so I started in midwifery uh, and again I, I didn't think I had the time or courage to do medicine at that point but I remember getting a couple of years into my midi and I still don't know even today though whether I've made a mistake because I I still my close some of my closest friends are midwives and I look at their career and think oh should have I just done midi all these years of study in medicine uh, but what I love about obstetrics is uh, the high-risk pregnancies so I think coming out of a sports career where there was so much intensity in that, that I've learned to be good, calm in a storm, I guess is the best thing to say. So I, I don't want someone to come in when I've been beautifully birthing this woman for 10 hours or whatnot. And then unfortunately, you know, something doesn't progress quite the way we want it to go. And then obviously the doctors come in. So I thought, okay, I will try and, and see if I can transfer. So I definitely got a bit interested in things along the way. You know, when I saw my first heart, I was like, oh, cardiac surgery, that's interesting. And then... Um, you know, and then I love ED medicine too, because of the trauma and the interest is amazing. But every time I come back to women's health, uh, either infertility, gynecology, I, I'm, I'm very passionate for women's health in terms of gyne oncology as well. Having gone through two cervical cancer scares now, I didn't, I thankfully only got to high grade dysplasia and not cancer. Um, and that's just recently happened again, only a couple of weeks ago. So, um, the gyne oncology is somewhere, something I'm really passionate about too, about making sure women are up to date with their cervical screening tests or the old pap smears. Mm. So it's just... I think where I have athletics and women's health together means that I can use my voice that I grew in sport to hopefully therefore voice for certain campaigns in our spheres as being a woman and, and hopefully encourage women to stay healthy in all areas, be it obstetrically, you know, during birth and labor and pregnancy um, or, or after, you know, after menopause, even in, in women who have potentially prolapse issues with prolapse when they're, when they're running or when, you know, in just general life um, and, and cancers. Mm. 
I love that. And, and I, I did note down that you are an ambassador for the Australian Cervical Cancer Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask, and you did just touch on that, um, after having those scares yourself, and I also have had a SIN3 um, scare when I was younger, um, was, you know, what advice would you give women, um, all women, in terms of, you know, protecting themselves against cervical cancer and what um, early detection and signs could they look out for? That's a great question. You, you can probably answer it similar to me because you've been through it as well. Uh, the first thing I have to say is we have such great screening in Australia. So I know it's uncomfortable. I'm assuming you're the same as me. You've had to have regular screens or regular, regular pap smears or what we call cervical screening now. It's not comfortable. So appreciate that for some women it isn't, but it could save your life. You know, I've seen, I've seen patients pass away of it now who had very little signs and others who had pain during intercourse or bleeding between periods. Uh, so sometimes you do have signs, but other times you don't. So that simple test now every five years, if you are, if you have a normal smear, could save your life. So I just think, let's just do it, because the idea of having to leave your family at home and you know, as in, and 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 pass away or have to have all the treatment related to cervical cancer when we could avoid it, um, is something I'm really I'm really hoping women will take up that sort of call. And it's and it's our responsibility to ask our friends. You know, I know it's an uncomfortable topic, but we're getting better with talking about uncomfortable things. So have you had your Pap smears? And every November we have the Cervical Cancer Awareness Week, so that can be the week that we all, you know, especially with RMA and things like that. Let's get a call out to say who's up to date and who's not. And I'm happy to take anyone with us. I'll go hold your hand in the, in the waiting room if you like, and then you can go in and then come out and we can have a coffee. I'm happy to go with anyone who wants a running tip. I'll take you for a run and you go and have your smear. It's just, we need to get as many women as we can because Australia could really be the first country to get to, to eradicate cervical cancer, but not unless our women are screened regularly. Mm. And you've, you've hit it on the head there. Like people are just worried about the uncomfortable situation that you have to go into. And it is not pretty it's not fun and no one loves it um having a smear but it's necessary we all have to do it and um you know i think what you said too about talking about it and i'm so passionate about sharing these causes in rma i mean i talk about that i talk about breast screening and i talk about um skin cancer because they're the three biggies that i think you know everyone needs to look out for and if ovarian cancer is one of them as well but um you know, we need to talk about these things because a lot of people will just sit there and think, oh, I've had these symptoms, but uh, it's just, it must, it's probably nothing. And, and they, and they write it out until it's too late. That's right. um, it only takes, I've put every year when I put things in there as little reminders, you know, when have my skin checked, who's going to have their skin checked, stuff like that. Everyone goes, oh, thank you for saying, yeah. because now I've just, because you said that I've booked in my check for Monday, you know? So it's just a conversation. It's, it can be uncomfortable, but I think the more that we are used to talking about these things, the more people. Normalize it. Really right. yeah. 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 It's very, very important. And it's particularly, particularly for the cancers that are so avoidable, you know, things like ovarian can be very silent and there is nothing we can really check regularly unless, you know, you do have the symptoms, but things like skin cancers, we often see a mole, get it checked because you don't want to sit looking at that mole and then later find out it's too late. So, you know, I think I agree with you in, in particularly that, you know, the breast, self-breast exams and things like that, or any symptoms you have. As, as a doctor, I'd prefer you to come to me and with a little woe and I would go, you're fine, go, you know, go away and come back a week later if you're still worried rather than sit on it for six months. And then, and I, and I have seen that. It was one of the most tragic and beautiful stories. It was a lady, she had a fungating breast cancer and she was too embarrassed because it looks like an ulcer. So it's an, it's a, and if any of you have this at home, please go and see a doctor because it's very rapid. 
Um, and she happened to be someone who loved my sports career and was just, just desperate to come and talk about sports. So I remember sitting there for an hour talking about sport. And then I asked her, why didn't you go to the doctor? And she's like, because I just figured it was nothing and I was embarrassed. And then she passed away a couple of days later. So it's just not worth it. You know, our egos and our um, embarrassments not worth losing your life over. No, totally agree. Totally agree there. Let's talk about what you're doing now. You've graduated as a doctor. What's your role look like now? Where are you working? So and uh, when you first finish medicine, you go into a very general role. So it's called your internship. So you get allocated five different rotations. I was very, very lucky to get ONG, OBS and Gynae, um, in my first year, which is not very common in, um, in, in that, at that level. Uh, and thankfully, this year, I've got three terms in ONG, which is amazing and, again, unheard of. Um, I've done a lot of research and I've got a Master's of Reproductive Medicine too, so I think it, it was helpful when I, when I pleaded with them and said, please let me stay. They agreed. So, And then I'm doing emergency medicine, the other terms, which I also love. They're, the, they're my two, my two favourite areas of medicine. So I'm very lucky that I'm already in, um, in the areas that I'm, I'm most effective in, I guess, and also love the most. Mm. So how long will the rotations go for? Uh, they're 12 weeks long, so or 10 weeks as a June, as a JMO, and then 12 weeks when you get up to RMO, SRMO levels. Um, and then I'll hopefully apply for, so for in, in medicine, you apply for the College um, of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, I'll either apply for that next year or the year after, depending on my skill level. So it, I don't want to apply until I'm safe. You know, it, it, obstetric medicine is beautiful. And most of the time it's one, you know, really wonderful. Um, but it, it's horrible too. You know, we, we, I am at Blacktown hospital and it was in the media last year that there was some deaths at our hospital, which obviously I, I can't talk about cause it's not, there wasn't, it didn't involve me, but it happens in medicine. You know, it's a dangerous medicine at times and it's very emotive. So if a woman loses her baby, no matter what stage of her pregnancy, um, you know, I've lost babies at, at, at nine weeks and it's horrific and painful. And, you know, it's so sad when you're on the wards and a lady is coming in desperately trying hold on, holding to, hold, to hold on to a pregnancy and, and there's nothing you can do but comfort her. So, um, yeah. But I, it's funny, though, a lot of my colleagues say they don't like that side of it, but I actually love that side of it. Um, and I, and I, I don't know, I just love sitting with that lady knowing that what she's going through will be one of the hardest things she'll ever go through in her life. And I feel like... I help in that setting and I help more than if I'm helping a beautiful baby be birthed, you know, giving the mum who's already so in love with the baby and doesn't care who's there to be honest at the last minute. Cause you know, you're just pushing a melon out your vagina. So um, <laughs> let's be really honest. I don't really care who's at the end of my bed when I'm pushing out in something. So um, whereas you're needed in those moments when you're heartbroken. And I can see like, you know, your personality shines through there. You know, you are a very empathetic person who, you know, who cares and where's their heart on their sleeve um, but, but i imagine as a doctor though that would be quite a hard thing to like to remain um professional <laughs> and calm in those situations like you know. both yeah. So we, we get taught at medical school not to cry not to personalize um you know you empathize not sympathize um, and I try sometimes, but there are also occasions when I cry with the patient mm -hmm. and I initially thought, oh, that's completely wrong. That's not what I've been taught. But on the, on the, on the few occasions that's happened, that family has often written me a letter because I'm so accessible, obviously on Facebook and whatnot. Yeah. Said, Thank you so much for getting my wife through that moment. If it wasn't for, you know, you sharing with her. I, so I think you need to pick the moment. Um, and if you feel like, and I, there was definitely a time, um, there was a lady who was losing triplets, unfortunately, and I was not able to, it was so, I was so emotional. 
I think I just had a baby myself and I was hormonal and whatnot. And so I took myself out of that because I could see it was not, my emotion was not appropriate for her, but I've been in a woman when another lady was, was losing a little one as well. And she just wanted to hold my hand and cry with me. And so I let my, I just let it out. Cause she was like, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. Would you like me to leave? She's like, please don't leave. I love that you're sharing this with me. And so we both, we held her little baby that had passed and we just looked and sat there for half an hour and, you know, and then they, then she spoke to me yesterday saying, thank you so much. And will you be my obstetrician next? And I'm like, oh, I can't yet. I'm not qualified. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to in a few years. <laughs> so, yeah. It's such like a the right thing when you, those moments happen. You have to read the, read the situation, I think, and know when. And ultimately, the thing is we're human. And if, sometimes doctors don't have, like I've, I've certainly had doctors where I've been really worried about something and expressed that concern and they've sort of, you know, written it off. And I think, whereas some of the best doctors I've, had as mentors are the ones that give you that time and, and hear even your silliest concern. Mm. So, and I'm very lucky that a lot of the doctors I work with are like that. So I'm hoping I'll grow up <laughs> and be like them. <laughs> I think you're on the right, you're on the right track. I hope so. Yeah, you are. Um, let's just quickly go back to life in after sport now. Um, when you decided that it was time to end your athletic career, what was that like for you at the time? And what was the moment or was there even a moment or was it kind of just it was. Like you, times that, that you knew that this was it, this is the end for me? Uh, I, I, it, was, it was 2015, um, uh, no, yeah, to end of 2015, leading into the Rio Olympic Games. So I, was, I came out of bobsledding in Sochi in 2014. I thought I'll give Rio a crack because I was actually sprinting faster after bobsled than I'd ever sprinted when I was in, was in track and field. So my 100 metre time had dropped down to like 11.3, which is really fast. I think my PB in electronic P was like 11.5. So I thought, oh, come on, give us a crack. But I was already in medicine and um, I got invited to, so I was supposed to meet my coach at the track at 5 p.m. And I feel terrible still in hindsight, but I got invited to go into a cesarean and help as an assistant do the surgery. And uh, it would have been one of the first times I was actually like properly hands on the patient and, um, and, you know, helping suture and things like that, which is stitch up afterwards. And I completely forgot about training. <laughs> so my coach was at the track and I was not. <laughs> so, yeah, whoops. So I think I, in that moment, I realized my heart had shifted. It had shifted out of the athletics. It wasn't my number one priority. My priority had moved into, in, into medicine. Um, and, you know, I tried a few more times after that to sort of get the motivation up, but I just found I wasn't pushing where you need to push. The, the 400 meters is an event where you cannot be slack in training and you must, you need to walk that fine line and push that barrier beyond itself and I, my heart wasn't there anymore. So, and don't get me wrong. So the decision happened very quickly. And then it also helped that I'm like, oh, let's have a third baby in the back of my head. So I was pregnant three weeks later. <laughs> yeah, I'd had it like, obviously I'd been through IVF in the past. So I, I just decided, look, if I'm, if, if I'm so keen on medicine and I'm so keen on kids, someone else deserves that spot in the Olympic team because I'm not going to, I'm not going to do what I'm not going to do it justice. I probably would have made, maybe made the semi-final, and in truth, I'd, I'd been there and I'd done that. And I just felt like, come on, you're old enough. Let's get on with this with, with medicine. Mm, yeah. So. so in terms of like, you know, leaving the sport in that regard as, as a, a, a high level athlete, what does it look like now? And how did it look when you left in terms of, did you just stop running or did you continue running for enjoyment? And, and, and now I know I've seen you that you do still train. Um, you've trained after pregnancy and even during pregnancy, you keep fit. Do you ever have those feelings of like, just not, hitting the mark, even though you're really just 
doing life now? Like, do you ever feel oh. like I'm not fit now? Do you ever think that? Or do you think, no, this is a different time of life and I'm fit in other ways and I'm enjoying myself. I'm staying active and healthy. Like what's your mindset yeah. like in that regard in terms of right. It's a really good question. Um, a mixture there. So I, I love to run. There's just something about running that makes me very happy. <laughs> so I love the wind in my hair. I love the fact my brain doesn't, like I'm a big overthinker. And when I run, it doesn't do that. It just lets me run. So I still train. I still run track like I ran in athletics because I need to run at a certain level to make my brain leave me. <laughs> yeah. I, run, I need to be at least a little bit fatigued to be able to enjoy it. <laughs> um, but I also get injured all the time. So it's really hard that I'll go for a couple of runs and then, and then I'll tear my calf out of the middle of nowhere and then I get all disappointed by it. So I definitely still have that heartache. I don't race because I don't want to be judged. So I, and I greatly miss racing. So a part of me wish I had the courage to just say, who cares? I'm 85 kilos now. I used to be 75 when I raced. Who cares if I've got a bit of extra hanging over my bloomers? Um, and who cares if I run 65 seconds when I used to run 50? But mm -hmm there's still some part of me that's so competitive in athletics that I just can't. So I race myself in training. I love going and doing like things like park run. Um, I'll quite happily jump into some master's races when there's like a relay or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I certainly have a goal that I'd love to get back into master's racing, but I have to be, I have to be at a certain level before I'd allow that to happen. And I haven't got back to that level yet. So mm -hmm. I want to, yeah. And I think, I think most elite athletes do feel that when they're finished because you know, you would, I'd be quite happy to go throw and yeah. do a different sport altogether. Um, but my, my own true sport, I would be a bit, I'd be embarrassing myself with my current level of athletics, athleticism. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. interesting you say the master's thing and what you just said there that you'd have to reach a certain level because the other day at Parkrun, I was talking to a lady who is doing master's and um, I said, oh, what do you normally kind of running do you do? And she said, well, I do master's athletics. And I said, oh, really? Wow. I said, I've always wanted to do it, but I've never felt good enough to do yes. it. And here I run 100 kilometers, like 50. You're I amazing. I don't want to run five kilometers on the track because it terrifies me to think that I'm going to be slow and people are watching me go around yep. in circles and there's all these things. And we got chatting and, and she messaged, emailed me the other day, actually, and I have had this um, conversation with quite a few people over the last few years in RMA about masters and athletics and women and in athletics. And we're talking about track here yep. um, that they just feel so inhibited. They just feel like there's something holding them back, wanting to get onto an athletics track and have a go. And yep. I know athletics Australia and athletics New South Wales particularly have put on track run or track races where you can just be part of the community yep. and have a go but there's something always holding me back. So anyway, we're going to try and organize um, a run session, like a session where people can come and try it. Yep. And it doesn't have to be in a race setting first, but just come and try it and talk about all the different things that happen at it's great. Track and then see if we can get more women interested in doing master's athletics. That's a great idea. Do you think like, not only obviously, you know, you've come from a very, a very different level of sport, um, but do you think that that is a theme you hear of a lot with women? I do. Don't want I to try. Yeah. It's nervous because we're our harshest critic. And let's be honest, people probably wouldn't care, but we don't seem to be able to acknowledge that in ourselves. So, or they'd care for the first two or three times they saw fat Yana running around the track and then they'd be over it because she's there again and again and again. So it's only really the first or second or third time where you rock up and run slowly. And then people will probably actually go, 
wow, how great is it that she's down here having a go and she obviously just likes to run. Um, and one of my heroes in the world is Edwin Moses. So he's the world record holder, for, well, he was the world record holder for the 400 meter hurdles. And he would literally get out of the stand later in his career, he'd done with it. He was there pretty much showing up, you know, just because he was him and he would like to run. He wouldn't even warm up. He'd be sitting in the stadium and then they'd announce the race and he'd just chuck his spikes on and go out and run terribly. But it was, it was just the crowd just loved him being there and being part of it. So we do need to be a little bit less inhibited by our own, by ourselves. Um, but it's also, you've also got to acknowledge that it, we are human and it's normal to have those insecurities. And when we're ready, we take that step. And when we're not, we watch others take it until we feel ready. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing uh, to note is that we can learn from watching others. And, right. and I try and display that with RMA in terms of even just the imagery that I put up. It's, it's everyday women of all types, shapes, yep. sizes, Olympians to the, the person who's just starting out, you know, pregnant, not pregnant, like, you know, grandmother, <laughs> you name it, we've got it. And, um, and that, that leads me to my next question is because of the imagery that I put up and obviously something we just talked about, women feeling inhibited, what do you think we can do as women in our generation to teach the younger women to have a go? Because in terms of sport, I think sometimes the messaging needs to change so that we can encourage more young women to actually get involved in sport, not particularly just athletics or running, but in sport, because I think a lot of girls, particularly teen girls, um, it, it just drops off. And they, their main driver for not wanting to have a go is because they feel like they're going to be judged or they're not going to be good enough. Well, I'm, I'm at an, I run at a, a particular park where quite, quite a few of the schools utilise it as well. And you, and you see these girls and they're just walking so slowly at the back of the pack and they're not even having a crack. And you just think, and I'm there pushing a pram with two kids in it and I run straight past them. And you just think, I'm some old fuddy-duddy. I'm 38 years old pushing a pram. You're like 15 or 16. Just run with me if you want. But they, they don't want to because they're embarrassed, obviously. that Well, they want to have a chat first because let's be honest, they're social. But at the side of that, they're, they are, they're, they're underlying that they don't want to give it a go because it's embarrassing if they don't or maybe they don't look good when they're running or their hair gets sweaty or they get sweaty shorts or whatever. But in truth, I think the only, I don't know the answer to that. The, the, what I'm doing with my girls is I take them to the gym with me all the time. I take them running with me all the time. When we hike, I carry them in backpacks so that they understand that exercise is normal. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping they grow up thinking, well, that's just what mummy does. So, and especially now that I'm not training for anything, um, I'm just training for fun. They know that that's just fitness. So the more it becomes a normal thing, like normal diet, healthy eating is a norm. Uh, hopefully it just becomes organic for them to continue it into their teen years. Um, and, and also again, it's us, us as parents encouraging them if they are academically inclined to say, like I've already reiterated before, it will help you academically. It will help your body image. It will help you feel good. And even if you have to sit down and show them what endorphins are and show them what adrenaline is and show them what exercise can do. I mean, I say that, but my 14 year old, I can barely get him to come out and have a run with me. So I'm hearing you know, someone might have an answer, but I think, I think you're right. I think it's, it's once again, normalizing this, trying to yeah. talking about it and making it a part of everyday life that we, we exercise because it makes us feel good. Right. It's not all about performance. It's not all about coming first. It's not all mm -hmm. about looking a certain way. It's just getting out and exercising. Yeah. Because it makes us feel good. It's part of our day. Uh, we can connect in nature. We can have right. some, you know, good mental health. It can help with our performance at school, even like all those different facets. Yeah just part of life so i think you know 
the more we normalize behavior like that, the more people will be willing to have a go. But I think too, it needs to be normalized in mainstream media as well, that, you know, the imagery that's around sport isn't always, you know, the, the really fit, slim, buff looking girl that is so hard for normal teen girls to attain. Yeah. Impossible. You know, yeah. It's impossible. Um, so they're not going to have a go because they're never going to get there. Very true. Very, very true. Okay. Let's just finish up now with the RMA hot lap. So at the end of every podcast, I ask some questions, uh, five questions that relate to you. Um, they're always different to each guest. So I've given you five different questions that relate to you and your journey. You can uh, make them as short or long as you like the answers. But the first one is, what was your favorite moment from your athletic career? Oh, goodness. Uh, can I have two? <laughs> yes, you can um, have two. Very quick. The first one was running with Kathy Freeman in the 4x4 at the 2002 Commonwealth Games uh, because to be able to run with someone like her was just extraordinary and to be in the team with her and win the gold medal and stand on the dais with her was like... I can still feel it now. It was amazing. Um, and the second one would be having won the world championships just after having Cornelis. So seven months after I had Cornelis because I just thought it was impossible. And so to sort of get out there and go, wow, we're pretty amazing as women that our bodies can go and grow a big baby and then pop it out and still keep going. So um, I surprised myself greatly in that moment. Mm, that is incredible. What is your favorite way to relax now? uh pass <laughs> no <I'm> kidding <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean i'm like yeah what's relax <laughs> um uh look I'd st I'm, I'm probably a netflix girl to be honest so i probably at the end of the day to wind down would just watch um, a medical show usually one of those you know scrubs or Grey's yep. anatomy or whatever and do they know what they're talking about on Grey's Anatomy, Dr. Pittman? <laughs> you know, it is hard when you watch medical shows after you've qualified because, like, when they're doing CPR at a rapid rate of knots and you're like, mate, you're going to kill the patient. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I still, I just love it. I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's my world, isn't it? So. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Um, if you could give someone starting out in sport, it doesn't have to be running, one piece of advice, what would that be? Um make sure you're still in love with it no matter every day you get up. So if you get up and I know sometimes people, um, you know, have to push themselves. I get that. But if you get up and there's a day you really, really don't want to go, don't uh, because otherwise you're only going to get hurt or injured or fall out of love for, with, with what you do. So uh, to be a great athlete, you need to have the genetics, uh, the ability to train hard, but also the love for what you do. Mm, I love that. I really like that advice. Who is your greatest inspiration? In sport, it was Debbie Flintoff King um, for many, many years. And I mean, Kathy Freeman as well. The two of them go sort of synonymously. And uh, in life, it's probably my father, actually. So uh, he is an incredibly hardworking man who has is 70 plus and still works every day on a building site, um, has provided an incredible life for me as a, as a young person and half funded my medical degree to make sure I got to the end and is just tenacious and strong and intelligent. And if I could be half the man he was, I'd be pretty proud. Mm, that's beautiful. And hopefully he's listening so he can. <laughs> Otherwise I'll be sending that little snippet somewhere to your dad. 
Oh, that's great. That's so nice. I love when people say that. I love when people say their dad or their mom or someone that's a close relative and just how that's impacted their journey. I just love that. He's made my life what it is. Like I honestly wouldn't be here. Both my parents, my mum was the one. It's sad because my poor mum misses out regularly because she's the one who drove me to training every day and carries my babies and does all the babysitting and everything. And really she is the hardest working mother I know. But my poor father is the one <laughs> I, I draw the motivation from. So it's like one is my best friend and one's my hero. <laughs> like that that's gorgeous uh if you could teach your children anything from looking at your journey mm. the whole lot of it what would that be oh gosh that's hard mm. hard work pays off it's probably the number one um you're going to fail over and over and over again but if you just keep getting up you'll often make that door open and uh, and succeed in the end it's not going to be easy there are going to be days that are very hard and tearful um and learn from those because you know that's the only way you're going to really understand where your purpose is in life. Mm, mm, so. Great. Okay. Well, um, I just wanted to find out where people could touch base with you or follow your journey as you continue this new career as a doctor. And also you share a lot on social media, all about lots of different things, um, training, motherhood, career. And I think it's, it's fascinating to watch and uh, where can people reach out to you if they'd like to. Um, also, if you just want to mention, you know, you did write a book, which I've read, which is fabulous. I, did. Um, <laughs> I have read it. It's amazing. Um, in fact, I went to find it when I was preparing for this podcast and I've given it to somebody to borrow and I don't know who it, who it is. So I couldn't even like read it again, um, but I did remember a lot of it. So, you know, if you just want to mention the book and also where people can reach out to you. Yeah, perfect. Um, so my Instagram is Yana Pittman Official. Um, I have a debate of whether I'll change that, but at the moment it's Yana Pittman Official. Um, I wanted Dr. Yana Pittman, but I didn't know if it was too arrogant or not. So, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, Yana Pittman Official. And then my Facebook's Yana Pittman 400 and my book's called Just Another Hurdle. And where can they find the book? Can they find it in most bookstores? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's on and off. It sells out and then it comes back on. So you can get it at most libraries actually hold it, funnily enough, if you want to just borrow it for a little bit. Um, otherwise, Amazon. Or you can actually contact me through my website and I can get it to you, which is um, www.yarnapitman.com. And there's an info page on the back and we can send you one. Oh, thank you. And thanks for sharing um, with us tonight. Okay. It's been such a beautiful conversation and I look forward to heading out for that run in the trails. Absolutely. Hopefully the next couple of months. What an amazing episode that was, learning more about the beautiful Yana Pittman. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to reach out to Yana, you can do so on, as she mentioned, her socials, her website, yanapittman.com, or maybe you'd like to head over and buy her book, Just Another Hurdle. For those of you that have reached out to me regarding winter gear for RMA, there will be another pre-order which will be opening this week. So head to the website runningmumsaustralia.com.au to order your winter gear now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I look forward to bringing you another great episode in a few weeks' time. For now, head over, rate, subscribe and review and please share this episode with your friends.